0: I know, I was telling my community group this week that I am an expert at breaking up good Christian fellowship to begin things, and so exercising one of my chief strengths once again here. All right. All right. Oh, where's my thing, John, John? There it is. right here got it all right how do i want to arrange things here let's arrange it like this all right let's pray god we are thankful to gather in the house of the lord the people of god listening to proclaiming to one another and being transformed by the word of god And we pray uh, that you would help our time together be insightful, that it would be practically helpful as we continue to think about the church, membership, discipline, how you've set these things up for a purpose, Lord. And um, we pray that you'd be with us in a special way over the next couple of minutes. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, Okay, so just to briefly recap, if you were not here last time, we moved into a discussion of church discipline, which is really the other side of church membership. Um, I suggested that if you don't have a high view of church membership or legitimate church membership, or in some cases no church membership at all, then church discipline becomes either impossible or meaningless because it is kind of the same side. And I suggested that Uh, Church discipline is not punitive; it is not vindictive. We're not punishing someone; we're not exacting justice. But it is restorative; it is corrective, and it is protecting the purity of the church by restoration aimed shaming. That's that's what I that's the analysis that I gave, which I realized was initially uh, maybe a little bit alarming for some. That the it protects the purity of the church. So there's a twofold purpose: protecting the purity of the church by Restoration, aim, shaming. The idea is you're rendering someone outside that they do not belong. That's the nature of shame. There is something about me such that I do not belong. And that is to uh, the grace to quicken their hearts that they would repent in turn. Um, and we look through a variety of texts. Now I want to make one qualification that I did not make last time because you can't make every qualification in every, in every bit of teaching that you have. And that is about the passages that talk about Handing someone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh or having just nothing to do with somebody. All of these statements come in the context of church discipline uh, and and therefore the have nothing to do with them passages or turning them over to Satan passages have to be understood in that context. Um, There are two two ways, there are two misinterpretations to guard against here. One is that there is a biblical step after church discipline where if it doesn't work, then you take this next step and just kind of boot somebody out. Okay? That is not the picture that we see. That there is church discipline and then there's like a next level church discipline. If church discipline is like not taking, it's not taking, then you just totally ostracize someone and then and, and totally put them outside of any social fellowship um, whatsoever. Um, and then so and, and related to that is also not saying that when you're to have nothing to do with somebody, um, that, that it's not that it's having nothing to do with them in any context whatsoever at all. Socially, don't play a board game with this person. But that your association with them is not of a kind that affirms membership in the body of Christ. That's the that's the key. Uh, It is that is to say, you don't want your interaction with them to signify the opposite of the church discipline that they are are, or other. Okay, your togetherness isn't publicly affirming what church discipline is publicly denying. Um, Jonathan Lehman, by the way, great little book. If I know people love little books, I love little books. Great little book. If you want a little primer on church discipline, this tiny little book by Jonathan Lehman is fantastic. I want to read you this one little quote here. Here we go. Uh, I want to read you this one little quote that actually sheds a lot of light on some other passages in the New Testament as well, but is relevant particularly to our purposes here. It says, Still, the church's act of excommunication or church discipline meant that a new burden, oh, I need to. So he's, he's entertaining a case where there is a wife of a man in the church who's put under church discipline. There's a married couple. He's entertaining all these nasty cases, and we're going to get to some of them today, actually. But he's entertaining a case where a man and woman are you know, married. They're going to the same church. or are both members. The woman is put under church discipline. That's the context for what he's about to say. Still, the church's act of excommunication meant that a new burden was placed on Joe, this guy, and how he was to interact with his wife. Paul's purpose in charging members not to eat Here's the part I want you to listen to very carefully. Paul's purpose in charging members not to eat with excommunicated members served at least three purposes. One, to protect Christians from the leaven of sin. Two, to protect excluded members from thinking the church regarded them as believers, to undercut the public proclamation or declaration of church discipline, and to protect the church's witness in the community. In the days of the early church sharing a meal with an individual communicated the extension of fellowship, care, and protection, hence why the religious leaders objected to Jesus' eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Paul did not want church members to engage with excommunicated members in any way that would communicate this kind of shared Christian fellowship, which is why someone under church discipline does not, what meal do they not share with everybody? Huh? Huh? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. That's why someone under church discipline does not share that meal. They do not share the Lord's um, Supper. Uh, because that, is, that would be to publicly announce and confirm what church discipline is publicly declaring uh, the case not to be. Um, finally, let me just give a one theological, kind of a, a categorical clarification for the handover that Hymas and, Hymenaeus and Alexander are delivered over to Satan um, to be taught not to blaspheme in 2 Corinthians 2, when they're all gathered together, they're to turn this person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, but the salvation of the soul. What exactly go- is going on there? I would suggest when you put the pieces together, you have for Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, that there is a God, there are really kind of two kingdoms, okay, in one sense. Uh, you have the kingdom of God, then you have a kingdom of darkness ruled by the little g, little, little g God of this age. God of this age who is blinding the mind of unbelievers. So you have two kingdoms, and to reckon someone as a public declaration um, outside of the kingdom in church discipline, the kingdom of God, is to, by default, reckon them as a declaration, again, not as some kind of private insight into their soul, but as a categorical declaration into the kingdom of the God of this age, presumably because of how they are living, and the idea is when someone is outside of the kingdom in that way, reckoned outside the kingdom and therefore into the kingdom of the God of this age, um, that that the, their, the hope is that their flesh, their sinfulness is a lot in light of being cut off from the body um, will be destroyed and that they will repent and believe. When I say destroyed, I don't mean that they will become sinless, but I mean that they will come to their senses is one way that Paul actually says it in the pastoral Epistles, and that they will repent from what they are doing, and they will return. So it's not um, the deliver over to Satan language that sounds maybe merciless, it sounds evil, it sounds cruel. But what I'm suggesting is it is in the context of these passages of church discipline and being reckoned outside of the church is to be reckoned as a public declaration into the kingdom of the God of this age, which is the realm um, theologically and categorically of Satan. Is there, are there any questions about that? Because I know that that could be a difficult thing to understand on, process I know it sounds very harsh and sharp any questions about the hand him over to Satan being identified with church discipline or church some of this language not being an extra step after church discipline hasn't worked any any clarifying questions or comments about any of that okay so everyone so on board everyone understands or if you're not on you're not, no, you may not be on board but everyone understands what's being communicated there okay okay. so we talked about the embassy model of church membership who can tell me who can tell me what, what, what I mean by the embassy model of church membership what did we talk about does anyone remember I know it's been two weeks by the way hello I'm back good to see everybody what uh, the embassy model does anyone remember anything about that passports okay good passport we'll, we'll talk here tell me and then we're gonna go back to josh for more about passports Yep. Yeah. huh okay representative of the so what is the local church on the embassy model oh man i gave it away the local church well no it's an embassy well it's the embassy it's an embassy of a far country right Local churches are little embassies. And so I gave the example last time. If I show up to France and I and I'm trying to go through customs and I'm like, hey, dude, I promise I'm American. Like, I promise. Like, here's my Leonard Skinner shirt. I've got my Alabama jacket on. I've got all the and this guy's oh, this dude's totally, totally Ameritrash American. Obviously, I have him totally convinced um, that I'm an American. Will he let me through? The answer is no. Because I do not have the authority, I have the, I can identify and I should identify as an American, but I don't have the authority to authoritatively proclaim myself an American to the nations. Because anyone could then do the same thing. Anyone from, you know, they could just dress up and get some shirts and, you know, put some headphones and blare the same music and call themselves an American too. How are they supposed to know there's no stamp of authority. So what we said is that the, the, what what, what really takes what it really takes to get in there is a passport. A passport. A passport is, a, and I would have to get one, I would presume, from the embassy if I ended up there and I didn't have one. There would have to be some phone calls made. I don't know exactly what would happened, thankfully, out of all the horrible forgetfulness that I've ever had. I've never forgotten my passport. Uh, but if that happened, there would have to probably, we'll, we'll, we'll tease it out this way be something that happened with the embassy such that they would recognize me as an American and they would officially give me a stamp stamp as an American. So, how does that apply to the church membership? Well, we said that anyone can stand up and identify themselves as Christians. Anyone can. Okay? And everyone who's a Christian should identify as Christians. They should. But that's not the same thing as the keys being wielded over you. We talked about the, the Keys of the kingdom and been given to the local church to, pro- to proclaim proper confessions, beliefs, proper confessors. You cannot declare that over yourself. So what I'm suggesting is that church membership is like getting your passport at the embassy. Church membership not only says, hey, I'm identifying myself as a Christian, but it's saying, hey, and my fruit and my life and my beliefs are being stamped by other people who have read, in, in the ch- case of our local church, who have read my understanding of the gospel when I came to faith in Christ, why I believe I'm still a Christian who, is re- who, are re- who I'm regularly gathered together with. And in fact, this passport is something that has to get renewed uh, day by day. I can't just decide to stop walking in obedience to Jesus and then keep a valid passport, right? I can't say, no, I'm done with holiness. I'm done with this. I'm just, But I'm going to keep the passport because I like identifying this way. Doesn't happen. So what is what is church... How does the embassy model fit into church discipline? I know it's a long paragraph. It's not a good PowerPoint best practice, but just read it with me, okay? With an embassy understanding of church membership, church discipline is an act that authoritatively revokes one's passport for the kingdom. Importantly, it does not require or even involve individuals speculation about someone's objective status before God. Let me read that again. It does not require or even involve individual speculation about someone's objective status before God. Rather, it is a public declaration by the embassy that one's public fruit cannot be squared with their public profession to represent and follow Jesus in light of Scripture. Okay? So what I, want, what I want to, here's the way I want to tease this out. Church discipline happens in the presence of an inconsistent triad. An inconsistent triad. All three elements have to be there. All three elements have to be there or you don't have church discipline. First, Scripture's characterization about the lives of those who are citizens of the kingdom and those who aren't. Second... A particular member's claim to follow and represent Jesus as a member of that kingdom, and three, the facts about how that person is living in unrepentant sin of a kind that undercuts their profession of faith. Those three things. So, again, first, first thing, the first part of the inconsistent triad: what scriptures, scriptures characterization about the lives of those who are citizens of the kingdom and those who aren't. First Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, or do you not know, these are just representative examples here, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers, or inher- swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's one of the vice lists. There's other vice lists in the Um, Old Testament. And like I said, this is what would be to be rendered into another kingdom if this is what you display. Listen to how Galatians 5 characterizes these fruits in contrast with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. It's like, by the way, that's all of them. You're like, well, what counts exactly? Sexual Like trying to put all three things there that's like Something that you can think of that's related to sexual sin, that's included in one of those three, okay? Does this count? I'm not sure that this one is sexual immorality, impurity, or sensuality. I think it's like this fourth category that Paul forgot. It's like, no, it's not, okay. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So kind of you get another vice list there. But, and then in contrast, you get the fruits of the kingdom or the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, or in the Greek literally uh, against um, things like this, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desire. So that's the first step. Here's what the first step of church discipline. Here's what the Bible says life of a kingdom citizen looks like, and here's what it says the life of an unbeliever, uh, someone who's not in the kingdom looks like. Step one. Step two, here is this person who professes about themselves, I am a blood-bought follower of Jesus. I am indwelt by the Spirit, pursuing Christ, Representing Him. That is my claim. That is how I identify. And that is what I that is. That is how I understand myself. Second part. Third part. The facts about how someone is living in unrepentant sin that undercuts their identification with Christ, which is going to be something that shows up in one way or another on one of those vice lists in an unrepentant way. Okay, so I've got here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of of heaven. Here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of the world. Okay, understand? Objective. Here's this person, their profession of faith, what they claim about themselves. Then here's the objective facts about what's going on in their life and how they're living, and that, in the case of sin, creates an inconsistent triad. I can't continue if I I cannot continue to hold all three of those things together. Does that make sense? It's inconsistent. I can't hold all three of those things together. I can't hold uh, someone who is walking and the facts about their life suggest that they are walking in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God um, but they are professing to follow Jesus and the scripture says that people who follow Jesus look like this. Okay? Um, If someone you just have removal from membership. You don't put people under church discipline who aren't Christians. Okay? They've got to be holding on to the faith. That second part's got to be there. The first part is defined by Scripture. That's never going to change. Second part, you have to have a person who's professing Jesus, who's holding to the faith publicly and saying, yes, I'm a public representative of Christ. I'm indwelt by the Spirit, member of the kingdom. And then if you have those two things in place, that third piece causes all the tension. But here are the objective facts about my life. And it's it's kind of sin that undercuts My identification with Christ that calls into questions about the fruits of the kingdom of darkness. And we're looking at the facts about your life. And we're getting, we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of confidence. Now, this is a part that I want you to realize right here. Just everyone make sure to read this twice. Here we are. Deep or personal familiarity with a person being considered for church discipline is not required. Deep familiarity with a person being considered for church discipline is not required. It would only be required if you were sitting there trying to discern the the core of this person's heart. In that case, people who knew that person much, much better would probably have a much better perspective on that. But that is not what the Bible is calling us to do because no one here is God. No one is omniscient. Um, it doesn't take any personal familiarity to say, "Here's what the Bible says about this." This person claims this, without knowing that person personally. And in a church even this size, I mean, this is not a big church, but let's be honest: if you had to really know the each person's story in depth in order to to render some kind of judgment here, a church discipline would be impossible, practically, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? It would be—it's not workable. It's not even workable, and the Bible knows this. Okay, I'm just not saying this is a practice, This is a best practice. I'm saying you don't have to know them personally. And so, in one sense—and this is not supposed to—in one sense, it's not a personal thing. It's—it's it, it's impersonal in that sense. That you—you're not making. You're not. You don't have to move in and understand and, and know someone really personally. Disparaging them in some sense. You're just saying, listen. Just as a matter of fact, this doesn't add up here. Okay? Church discipline, again, seeks to uh, seeks the repentance and redemption of the person under it while preserving regenerate church membership. Okay? How does that work? If you don't have good church membership, if you don't have a healthy church membership, if, if anyone who raises their hand, bedding, or anything, and the embassy is just passports, we're just passing them out like candy— Church discipline kind of becomes, how do you make a judgment there? You're not sure that you even have believers. You don't have any necessarily a ton of confidence um, that that believers are making the call. In fact, did I tell you all this last time the church that Shanti and I were at was at before this about how we became members? Okay, I'm not going to say the name, but let me just tell you why church discipline would not work in a church like this. For a variety of reasons that I won't go into Shanti and I decided that the Lord had us at this church for this particular reason, for this particular season. We told the pastor we'd like to move forward with membership. And this was right before the service. Right before he was about to get up there, he said, "Have you all accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior?" I'm like, "Oh, oh yeah, absolutely." He goes, all right, yeah. y'all come up to the front right afterwards. We'll but y'all in. So we're not. He said, "I said, oh okay, okay." So we went up to the front, and and of course he didn't say come to the church. Now, if that's what your membership, petition for membership, meeting with an elder and having your answer to three of those questions circulated among our congregation to read and verify as you have spent a season among us. That's how it works here. Many other processes, but that's, that's how it works. Okay, let me put I'm going to put up one subtle technicality right here. One subtle technicality because it's going to come back uh, when we talk about baptism. So I'm just going to mention it now. And people are going to ask a bunch of questions. And I just just just, this is what it is. All right. I'm, I'm not fully fleshing this out. What about unrepentant sin that does not undercut one's claim to legitimate citizenship in the kingdom? Who can give me an example of unrepentant sin because we're saying church discipline is for unrepentant sin of a kind that makes me look at that person and say, I can't credibly affirm your your profession of faith because the way you're living, brother, sister. Well, what kind of unrepentant sin might not undercut someone's claim to legitimate citizenship? Could be something more concrete than this. They just seem like they're prideful. But but, but what what do you think would, would uh, be any, any any other suggestions here? Okay. Alright, so I'm going to suggest a couple controversial things, and you may not agree with them, but I don't care. (laughs) Because I'm just suggesting them as controversial things without saying anything one way or another. Suppose you had someone join the church, they're walking in faith. Uh, They're repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they esteem personal holiness highly, but they have an egalitarian understanding of gender roles in the home. They do not think that a husband is the head of the home. They and look at Ephesians, and they take 22 as the overarching heuristic verse there, and that there is mutual submission, and that a man and a woman, uh, you know, they kind of do, it's co, co-authority, um, co-split all, not just responsibilities, but split authority. There is no particular um, There is no particular order there. And perhaps uh, they're joining the church. um, And and they don't, and and of course, if they were to join our church, they would be very, very out of luck. But but suppose that they uh, supported, you know, a female uh, elder, females in the eldership. But it was a quiet thing that they supported. That would just go along with this egalitarian understanding of gender roles. So let me, so Tyler's controversial. I think that the Bible lays out that a husband is the head of his wife and I believe that wives should submit to their husbands with all the caveats in the world that I don't have time to go through and we've taught about it and I'm just trying to make the point here. Um, And I believe that to willfully, intentionally to subvert that model is in fact sin. I don't just think it's unwise. I think it's sin. Okay? If you have questions about that, I'm happy to answer them later. However... There are very, very godly, very, very holy, very, very mature believers who aren't complementarians like me. There are. I know them. I do. And I would not put that person under church discipline because the nature fronts in in belief, theological conviction. Let me give you another example. Are they in here today? Oh, mercifully they are not here no i'm kidding i would give this example anyways let me just say um that that i personally do not hold that pedo baptism is baptism i don't think it's a broken form of baptism like getting sprinkled as a believer okay that's a, that's a broken ankle still an ankle that's still believer's baptism effusion instead of dunking all right I don't think that Pedo baptism, again, this is just this is this is a standard Baptist position, so no one stare at it me like a stranger or something. Okay. I don't think I think paedo baptism is getting wet. I don't think it's baptism, biblically speaking. So does that mean that someone who is a convinced Pedo Baptist, and man, there are a ton of brothers and sisters that are great Pedo Baptists. But I do believe that in not baptizing their children when they repent and believe, they are sinning. Because I understand that to be what the Bible says that you are supposed to do. Is that right? Do you understand? If you're a Baptist, what you understand is that when someone repents and believes the gospel, they're supposed to be baptized. Okay? Seems to be the, if you're not, then you're probably are not a Baptist. Which is okay. Which is okay. However, I would not put someone... In fact, we allow we allow Pado baptists to join our church, and Mark Dever has cheekily said at one point, well, if you do that, then you have to, have to let them join your church and then immediately put them under church discipline for, un- for walking in unrepentance. Right? You see his point, right? You're telling me that they can immediately join your church, be willfully unrepentant, publicly unrepentant, because on your view they're disobeying, In fact, he says Jesus' easiest command is to get wet. It all gets worked harder from there. He jokes about that. But the question is, is that a kind of sin that undercuts someone's profession of faith and calls into question their membership in the kingdom? In Tyler's opinion, the answer is no. The answer is no. Now, I'm going to have to get a little bit thornier when we get to baptism. I'm going through Bobby Jameson's book right now, which is by far the gold standard. It's an entire I'm going to say a little bit more about that. Uh, But I think there are some other examples that would not undercut one's claim to genuine citizenship. Um, I briefly mentioned a woman who might use a certain kind of birth control uh, that many might consider an abortifacient because of the science of how they understand it to be working. Um, But I would not put a woman under church discipline for using a certain kind of birth control. Um, There also might be a case of someone who gets divorced in a terrible situation it is a horrible situation. It is a huge gray area. Did this count? Like, was this enough? Like, oh my goodness, it's just one of those nightmare cases that you can come up with. And I might have a personal judgment that that person should not have gotten divorced. But, but, but in that case, I would, be, I would say, hey, you know what? I happen to disagree, but that's, that's, that right there does not call your <laughs> at all of Jesus before the world what a terrible situation. I do happen to think that that was, you know, but nevertheless. Okay, so d- does that make sense? Does that make sense that there are some kinds of sin that are based on differences of belief? It doesn't make sense for you. Okay, so ask a question. <laughs> Well, it's not the different, it's the lack of action or action that stems from those that's the sin, not the belief itself. Yeah. So if someone repented and believed the gospel and didn't get baptized, what would you say? No, I, I it like it's not like, yeah, I, guess I did, I'm, I'm really struggling with the idea that it. it's not a first order gospel issue. And it's not, this is what I understand I'm I'm just, the Bible is saying, I the Bible differently than. Correct. Well, whether, how you understand the Bible is irrelevant to whether or not you're acting in accordance with it, right? At one level. I mean, uh, for example, evangelical Quakers and uh, those who are members of Salvation Army churches uh, don't believe in baptism at all. They believe it's, it's, it's something that fizzled out in the first century. I think they're, I think they're wrong. I think that, and I don't think that's how they understand the Bible, though. They, they, that's how they put it together. It's not saying that someone understands the Bible and then willfully disobeys it. That would be very problematic. But it's because someone has a clear conscience, has an understanding of these things, um, that they have a clear conscience for God, and that's their understanding of the Scripture. I think that's, I think that's maybe some of the tension that you're feeling that it doesn't feel like the same sin that would ever put someone under church discipline, not even close. But we have to ask ourselves why. I mean, it's still either, it's still disobedient to scripture or it's not, regardless of how you justify it. In your mind, and and my understanding is that my brothers and sisters who are Pado baptists are are just mistaken. And they believe I'm mistaken. They would say the same thing. They don't take it personally. They think I should be baptizing my children and that I'm sinning and not doing so. You can talk to them, seriously. Now, they might not say that because it sounds uncharitable. But I'm just saying, once we get to, you're going to run into some situations where someone says, the reason I even mention this is not to just throw people into confusion. It's to say that the vast majority of unrepentant sin, which is why these examples maybe seem a little bit odd, is of the kind that very obviously calls into question your faith. Is. I am concerned when we think of those things, the reason when I asked for an example, no one could give one, is because that's not the kind of, these aren't the kinds of ones we're thinking of. And yet, they still, at the end of the day, are, are, are disobeying the Bible. They're just doing it with a clear conscience. Diso- disobedience with a clear conscience. Because of how I understand the Bible. That's what this amounts to. It's still disobedience, though. So in your example, someone else could give different examples that are contrary to that. Because of their understanding of Scripture. Yes. And say, they do the same thing about me. But they would not put me under church discipline in a Presbyterian church either. Right. So you're making a distinction between, as you said, sort of first line basic principles of salvation versus sort of secondary. So it's well, So that part is certainly part of it, but it's also the difference between a sin that is based on me knowing what the Scripture says and walking this way instead, versus a sin that I understand the scripture to say this, and I'm walking this way, but my understanding is wrong. See, this person, the first scenario, does not do it with a clear conscience. They know they're disobeying the Bible. This person doesn't know they're disobeying the Bible. They're following after Jesus with a clear conscience, and I look at that brother and sister and say, hey, you're part of the kingdom, come on, let's go, We, we want you here. And as, it's gonna, as we're going to get to uh, my argument against Bobby James and others is why would the requirements to be part of the embassy of the kingdom be more be more specific than requirements for membership in the kingdom itself? I think the burden of proof is strongly on the person, especially on the embassy model, which both of them support, to say that if the church if we take the embassy model, why would why would membership in a particular embassy require something more stringent than membership in the kingdom that it represents i haven't got a good answer from dr jameson yet we'll see as we move on okay did that did it, did that clear up no not really okay we, we can we can talk later okay but prime the uh, but at the end of the day these are going to be cases where someone is basically sinning with a clear that's the simplest way to say it did you have a question Yes. So that would be, you mean like back in his culture? Yeah. Well, you would, I would imagine that, yeah, that would be a very interesting one. Certainly, you would be, (laughs) certainly, you would go under, let me just make clear, if you own, you think you're going to own anyone in our church, you will be out of here. Um, But yes, according to, in, in that time, it was looked at very differently, regrettably, regrettably, very regrettably. Okay, come ask me questions about that. You're going to, I, I mentioned that to say, uh, to, to to justify the caveat I'm making about unrepentant sin that clearly calls someone's profession of faith into question. And there can be examples of where I think, actually, I think that person's sinning, but it doesn't make me call their profession of faith into question at all. Okay? All right. So uh, let's do a couple of case studies here. We have about five minutes left. The wisdom here is in the details. So here's what I don't want to do. This is being recorded. Hi, everyone. What's not going to happen is I'm going to render a verdict on some of these things, and something happens down in the future. Like Tyler taught that one Sunday school where he said that they would do this in this case. Not happening. These are just, I'm just thinking through these, helping you think through some of these things, church discipline on the embassy model. Um, okay first let's talk about this and and uh by the way lehman and even as a little book he has he has like all these little vignettes he sketches and they're all real life examples if you want to read them uh, yourself i haven't included all of these in our time together but let's talk about a couple of different cases let's talk about first the case of the addict under church discipline what will that look like well in the case of the addict repentance will look like a pattern over time, as opposed to immediate action. I mean, there are some times where someone under church discipline um, can immediately turn from something. And the the best, the clearest example is someone filing for just a no-fault divorce. It's like, uh, wait, no, I just I'm just tired. I'm just tired of my spouse. Oh, they just don't please me anymore. I'm done. Life's too short to not be happy. I'm divorcing my spouse. And then that person, now I'm filing for divorce. As the process go over, boom, and that, and that person comes to, so the, the, the person says, "You know what? You're right. What am I doing? I've come, I've come to my senses. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not filing for divorce. Scrapping the whole process, cutting my financial losses, pursuing my husband or my wife." In the case of an addict, however, oh, of course, I jumped over to my sermon brief. That would be awesome to continue. Hold on, hold on, I'm so sorry. In the case of an addict, uh, the, the, the pattern will be over time because the action is over time, right? Um, discerning how long of a pattern or the precise contours of the pattern of walking in repentance will be different in every single situation. It just requires wisdom and transparency. And remember that one of the fundamental problems of restoration of addiction of any kind is Trust. Trust. You talk to anyone who has struggled with addiction, they'll tell you, like every, other, like every counselor who's ever struggled with addiction, that addicts struggle with lying. It's the only way to make that lifestyle sustainable. Addicts are liars, Ed Welch says in his book, Banquets of the Grave. Every single one of them, maybe, I guess someone knows that one addict who's not a liar. Like, okay, I get it. But he's making a statement about trustworthiness, and now that is one of the elements that has to be rebuilt Um, in order to receive anyone who has broken that kind of a trust in a pattern of repentance instead of just a, does that make sense? Pattern of sin, pattern of walking in, in faith. Um, Let me just, I'm going to actually skip over this one right here, the serial, um, the serial non-attender. I'll just say that in uh, the serial non-attender, meaning someone who, uh, someone who just is a member, and then one day no one ever sees him again. Goodbye, no note, no nothing, they just head out. Everyone calls them, um, and uh, the devils are going to be in the details here. What, can, can anyone get in contact with this person? What's their reason for just leaving? Because here we have a church covenant. We have a church covenant that comes into play, especially just be a total absentee, leave whenever you want kind of a member. Um, and so certainly this this could be adjudicated anywhere from in terms of how the details turned out to church discipline, to a, a letter of exhortation or rebuke, to removal from membership of the person just dropped off of the face of the earth. You can't get in touch with them. Maybe you file a police report. Are they in a ditch somewhere? We don't know. We don't want to put someone under church discipline who's in a ditch. You know, that's a bad look. It's a bad look. So we want to find out what's going on, but certainly the serial non-attender could potentially be someone who is under church discipline, provided you told the details of the story the right way. What about the, the, um, the, uh, oh, I skipped over. the divisive non-member? Let me ask you a question. Can you put someone who's not a member under church discipline? No. But what happens when you have a long-term member who's sowing seeds of discord in your church? Well, you do a couple things. First, you hope that the members of that church who are trying to guard the purity of that church would talk to that member, of that non-member. Say, hey, brother, sister, this is not helping our body. This, 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 is not, this is not a picture of unity, okay? You have the elders, pastors, who could also step in and say, hey, you are creating conflict. You, you are creating problems in this body. If that doesn't work, what you would probably want to do is you would probably want to call a congregational meeting with members and let them know what's up. This person so-and-so is not a member. Therefore, they're not a candidate for church discipline. Some of you have had the opportunity to do so. The elders have approached this uh, person as well. But we just want you to know that we think this person is likely a wolf in sheep's clothing. We can't be sure. We can't discern the heart. They're not a member. They're not – we hope they hear the gospel and repent from what they're doing here in our services but we don't want them unduly affecting our members, unduly affecting the unity of our body. And so all of you need to be, need to be aware. And if this person decides to join our church, the answer will be certainly not until they can show um, that they're not going to be a cause and source of, uh, of disunity and fragmentation. Okay, So you can't put that person under church discipline because they're not a member. But you can... Still guard the flock. By, okay, this, is, this is what we have going on. And everyone needs to be on the same team and we need to have the same message. All right, it's 9.45. I need to close. Um, I've got a couple more. I want to talk about the preemptive resigner, the person who resigns their membership right before they put, get put under church discipline to avoid that old, I resign my membership email right when things start going south. And then the newly decided unbeliever. What do you do with someone who's, under church, who's about to be put under church discipline but they, they decide they're not actually a Christian at, right at that time? Like, oh, okay. What, what, how do you handle that? We'll talk briefly about those two things when we come back, but we're out of time today. God, thank you for helping us um, consider these things, handle these things. We pray that um, you would give us grace in our interpretation of one another. Um, please give me grace as people interpret my words. Um, uh, set in stone on the on the internet forever now. Unfortunately, uh, but we pray that uh, this should be helpful. And as we as we think through the local church and the high responsibility and calling that we have to one another, but also to a watching world. So bless us uh, in our ministries as we continue.